Morning. So I'm going to talk about leadership this morning. Please excuse me, my throat feels a little sore. Not sore from sickness, just from overuse. Believe it or not, (laughs) it's probably because I don't talk enough, so when I do talk, it wears it out. So I'm going to start from my... uh, Maybe an overall view of leadership in um, probably more of more or less North America, and then move into more of a biblical view of leadership, and then kind of funnel down into uh, what we're looking at here for CCF. Um, so I like what Mike Ayers had to say um, about this subject. He says uh, possibly the saddest occurrence coinciding with the rise of the study of leadership in the 20th century was a drift of God's people away from the Bible as the standard of truth. The church, like the world, bought into the whatever works paradigm. Thus, the widespread secular notions about leadership became pervasive and difficult for God's people to withstand. This eventually led to the people of God some of them anyway, accepting the wholesale assumptions of worldly leadership, and the church began to take its leadership cues from a secular culture. I don't necessarily agree with his whole uh, inclusive, all-inclusive there. I don't think we've all done this, but we had definitely have done this here. But uh, it is a problem. The problem still exists today. Uh, The business sector in particular is celebrated as the ultimate source of truth about leadership, as opposed to God, God's words in some church churches. The trouble is we are borrowing concepts from an upside-down world. Uh, since what was practiced in business seems to work, work equally more profits, more followers, and larger organizations, some churches co-opted leadership principles from corporate America. The evangelical church in particular began to believe that business people did it better, Those in church who possessed great business acumen, but who possibly had very little understanding of what God intended for the church, populated church boards. Some churches became corporations. Some pastors became CEOs. Some Christian authors borrowed rather worldly concepts, slapped a scripture verse or two on them, and called it Christian leadership. When in actuality, they were promoting fleshly principles cloaked in spiritual language. This left the church with little distinction in our culture, an anemic entity copying the world and struggling at best to survive. Yet, in this context, God has provided a vast mission field of opportunity. That's the key right there. Biblical leadership is needed now more than ever. As believers, we have a unique and wonderful calling to address the leadership crisis, and we have solid ground on which to stand if we will recommit ourselves to the standard of God's word as opposed to taking our beliefs from the culture, we may catch a glimpse of the brilliant possibilities for biblical leadership and the stark colorful difference this kind of leadership will make in the middle of a world full of shades of gray. Biblical leadership involves at least five distinct uh, distinctives that are set in um, sharp contrast, the leadership theories and definitions of the modern world. The first one's character, second one's calling, third one's competence, fourth one's community, and the fifth one is Christ. Uh, Character is a set of moral qualities that distinguishes one person from others. These qualities include such things as honesty, courage, integrity, 
humility, perseverance, and decisiveness. Calling uh, is uh, biblical leaders uh, must not only concern themselves with how to lead, they must also address why they are leading, for what purpose, and they must find their why before they know their what. Incompetence in Psalm uh, 72 states that David shepherded with the uh, integrity of heart and skillful hands, he led them. Just as integrity of heart, i.e. character, is vital to biblical leadership, so are skillful hands or competence. Uh, Under community, he says, while secular leaders might concern themselves with profits and material productivity, biblical leadership is seen in terms of impact upon and relationship to people. The idea of community applies in two ways. First, the outcome of biblical leadership is always about transforming human lives. And second, biblical leadership takes place in the context of Christian community, doing life together. And finally, like I said before, it must all be based on Christ. So funny enough, in my experiences in corporate leadership um, and work and things of that nature, uh, it, it kind of went that way for a long time. And it seems to be circling back to a lot of the principles that you find in the Word because they find that it just naturally works better um, and people are more productive. And then you get all the things that companies like, like profits and productivity and all that stuff. So so it's kind of funny that it's worked that way. And not everyone has done this, but um, a lot of companies are doing that and implementing programs uh, that are funny enough basically based on a lot of these concepts um, to move things ahead. Uh, so diving into the word, got a lot of scriptures here. Uh, again, Psalm seventy-eight, seventy-two. with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. On the turn of shepherding, David was taken from the sheepfolds. In Exodus 3, 1, we read, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Like Moses, David learned how to shepherd with literal sheep. Uh, Cross-reference there is in 2 Samuel 5.2. In past times when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. The king is ideally a shepherd of his people, caring for them, protecting them, and leading them in faithfulness of, of the covenant. David, at his best, worked with upright heart and skillful hand. Though he had his own moral failures, of course, as we know, many of the kings in his line were much less upright and, and, uh, and less skillful. The term shepherd came to be used of leaders in Israel, priests, nobles, judges, and the prophet Ezekiel spoke out about the greedy shepherds in his day in Ezekiel 34. He looked forward to a time after the exile when God would raise up his servant David, i.e. the Messiah, who would be the shepherd of his people. Specifically in Ezekiel thirty-four twenty-three through 24, we read, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. A good cross-reference for that in the New Testament is John 10, 11, and 14. I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And that's obviously Jesus speaking there. So when Jesus called himself the good shepherd, he claimed to be the long-awaited heir of David, who would guide his people perfectly. Moving on, Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So the role of counselors is to aid a person in making wise decisions. A cross-reference for this is also found in Proverbs in 15.22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed in Proverbs 24.6. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. So while there is, uh, this is a particularly important For those who lead people, Proverbs also stresses its broader application to people's decision-making in all sorts of situations. And the contrasting description of how the wicked falls by his own wickedness in Proverbs 11.5, the righteous of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. So it's important to keep ourselves in check, too. Uh, in Matthew twenty twenty six to 28 it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, a servant was a hired worker who maintained the master's household, and his slave was someone forced into service. These were two of the lowest positions in Jewish society. Yet Jesus reverses their status in the community of disciples to indicate prominence and greatness. Jesus himself is the primary example of servanthood. Jesus will give his life as a ransom, which the Greek word there, uh, lutron, uh, means the price of release, which is a a word that was often used um, of money when they release slaves um, for many. And uh, for, in the Greek, is anti, which means in place of, and signifies the notion of the exchange and substitution of Jesus' life on the cross for all those who accept his payment for their sins. In 1 Peter 2.24, we read, He bore himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in 1 Peter 3.18 we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In John thirteen thirteen through 17 we read, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So the disciples will understand fully this, what Jesus was saying here, um, only after the cross. Uh, though they, they do grasp uh, in part Jesus' amazing humility, which serves as a model for all his disciples. It was very anti what was going on in the day there. And it would st- still anti what's going on in the day. 
uh, foot washing continues as a regular ceremony in a number of modern denominations which literally obey Jesus' command. Uh, you also ought to teach and wash one another's feet. Others believe that the language is figurative uh, for the importance of serving one another and the act itself literally is not required. We don't really wash each other's feet here. I've done it once. It's weird. So, <laughs> it really is. It's, it's humbling, I can tell you that. But um, yeah, it, it's again, it's like one of those things, the same reason why we don't greet each other with kisses and stuff like that. Um, in Acts 20, 20 through 28, or no, just verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. And that's precious. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-three through 24 says, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. For riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations, which is really important. Uh, you, you can't live off your variant salvation. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So paying careful attention to yourselves, spiritual leaders need first of all to guard their own spiritual and moral purity. The last part of this phrase refers to the blood of Christ being poured out in his atoning death on the cross. A cross reference here is Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And in 5.9 we read, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And again in Ephesians 1.7 it says, In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I love that word lavish. The reference to God in the first part of this phrase, the church of God, most likely is a reference to Christ as the head of the church and as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Alternatively, if God the Father is in view in this phrase, the church of God, then his own blood is a reference to the blood of God's own, that is, of God's own Son, which would be a legitimate alternative reading of the Greek there. In Romans 12, 3-8, we read, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, 
The one who acts of mercy does so with cheerfulness. So the diversity and unity of the church is illustrated by comparison to the human body. We all know this. We've heard it a million times. Just as the human body is one with many members, literally body parts, limbs, and the like, so the church is united, though it is composed of many members. On the theme of the church is the body of Christ. We read in Ephesians 4.4 4, and then 12 through 16. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. I'm going to read that again. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And the variety of the body is evident from the various gifts that God has given to the church. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, twelve four through 14, we read, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Holy Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to the other the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretations of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In his letters, Paul instructs prophets to speak only when they have faith or confidence that the Holy Spirit is truly revealing something to them and not to exceed the faith that God has given them by trying to impress others. And we still see that a lot today. Christians should concentrate upon and give their energies to the gifts God has given them, whether in serving others, teaching God's word patiently, or in exhortation and encouragement in the things of God. A few attributes necessary in exercising some particular gifts would include those who have a special gift of helping others financially should never give grudgingly, but always generously. Those who lead often have no one to whom they are accountable often. And hence, they must be aware of laziness, among other things. Those who show mercy to the hurting must not grow weary, but continue to minister with gladness. 
Christ gives specific spiritual gifts to people in the church whose primary mission is to minister the word of God. Those church leaders with various gifts are to equip the saints, all, all Christians, so that they can do the work of the ministry. This is basically the direction that CCF has been heading lately. All Christians have spiritual gifts that should be used in ministering to one another. In 1 Peter 4.10 we read, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. In Philippians 2, 3 through 4, we read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's often a temptation to be like Paul's opponents in Philippians 1, 17, where it says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment and operate in a spirit of selfish ambition, looking to advance one, one's own agenda. Such conceit or literally vainglory is countered by counting others more significant than yourselves or humility. It's very, very important. Paul realizes that everyone naturally looks out for his or own or her own interests The key is to take that same level of concern and apply it also to the interests of others. Such radical love is rare. So Paul proceeds to show its supreme reality in the life of Christ. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which is one of my favorite sections of verses of Scripture, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So now we're starting to get into uh, the area of Scripture that makes me a little nervous. Not in a bad way, but... In a good way. Teachers were important in the early church, and those who were ambitious sought to teach for the wrong reasons. However, with greater responsibility comes greater expectations by God. Kind of along the lines of Uncle Ben and Spider-Man there. Luke twelve forty eight. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much will be, uh, who then they entrusted much much more will be demanded. And teachers will be judged with greater strictness, literally greater judgment, since they are accountable for more. Honestly, like I said, this makes me a bit nervous. Um, This really puts a burden on me as a leader in the church to ensure that my heart and actions are in the right place. Thanks to God for his enabling victory in this and for his mercies where we flub it up, because we do. 
The faithful and wise manager is a person who faithfully and fairly cares for those for whom he is responsible, giving them their portion at the proper time. When the master returns, the faithful manager will be rewarded. A metaphorical picture of the rewards that will be given to faithful believers at the return of Christ Jesus. The faithful manager is then contrasted with the unfaithful servant who beats the household servants and gets drunk. I don't plan on getting drunk and beating any of you, but uh, the story is in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it. Um, To the surprise of the unfaithful servant, however, the master will return at an hour he does not know, resulting in swift and harsh judgment. He will be cut into pieces. Luke 12, 46 states, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. A cross-reference there in the Old Testament is Jeremiah thirty four eighteen, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So when he talks about uh, putting him with the unfaithful, it's a metaphorical reference to the punishment that awaits the unbeliever at the return of Christ. Uh, the latter description there is cross-referenced in Luke thirteen twenty-seven and 28. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Um, and especially in the parallel in Matthew twenty four fifty one, and we will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This indicates eternal judgment and separation from God. Much will be required. People who have been entrusted by God with many abilities and responsibilities will be held to a higher standard on the last day. Uh, across, another cross-reference there is Matthew twenty five twenty nine uh, For to everyone who has been given... More, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So now more focused on CCF, um, the church's responsibility to the leaders. Oh, this is for the whole church too, but uh, we all have been called to lift up our leaders, not only in church but governmentally too, in prayer and in action. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So we have some young people here in leadership now. Uh, in the case of this edict from Paul to Timothy, Timothy was likely around our ages in the mid-30s. Um, Paul didn't even get saved till his mid-30s. And... Then he spent a significant amount of time in preparation, likely about 14 years. Timothy grew up in the faith, so he kind of had that going for him. There are things that both young and old are called to do, setting example in those things, in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Just as the body is called not to do, discounting someone solely based on age. Uh, There's good reference to that in Job, too. There's a young guy there that speaks up and uh, has a lot of good things to say. First uh, Timothy 2, 1-4 says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, 
intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I love that verse, too. Just as a low-fruit example, uh, when was the last time that we prayed for President Biden in lieu of criticizing him? Honestly, it's not my forte. I'm not really political, and I probably could care less, but at the same time, I couldn't care less. Uh, But we certainly don't have to agree with someone to pray for them. Personally, and speaking for the leadership team as a whole here, I think it's safe to say um, that we specifically covet your prayers and we humbly ask you to be diligent in that role because it's not easy. And we, we need you. And we love you. 1 Peter 5.2 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So in nearly every place, I see Paul speaking about false gospel and false teachers. Uh, financial gain is almost always at the bottom line. Every, I've been reading through his letters lately, and every time that comes up, it's almost always about you know, using the gospel to make money. Um, and we see this all over in the church today. Uh, so nothing is new. It's been going on for thousands of years. Um, I would say that in our case here, uh, we would agree as a leadership team with what Brent used to say, uh, that he would rather be sitting in the back instead of being up front. So perhaps that's why we are up front. I am not sure. Uh, it's not that we don't want to see the church grow. Our hearts are after the things of God. And I believe that they're, they're all pure. Um, as amazing and, and rewarding as it is to, to, to lead, it's just simply a heavy place to be. And again, we just sincerely covet your prayers and your support. In Matthew thirteen seventeen, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So this verse really paints a clear picture of what the body should be doing for its leadership as a whole. I can't tell you how sobering it is for me to read the part of the verse that says they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So, we love standing up here, and we love uh, leading this church, and we love doing it as a team, and we're growing. And I figured I'd talk about this because it's been about a year, just over a year, since uh, Brent handed over the reins. So, we do covet your support, and we love you, and we just want to be the best leaders that we possibly can be. And it is, it's on our hearts to do right by you, And most of all, to do right by God. So let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord. I thank you personally for this body here. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for what you've been doing. I thank you for what you will do. Lord, I just humbly ask, not only for our church, but for the church as a whole in North America, all over the world, 
Lord, that we would get back to right leadership, that we would get back to the right way for the body to exist, to operate the way that you want it in our time. And we just pray, Lord God, that you would have things your way. So I just speak love and peace and prosperity and every good thing over this congregation and over the church as a whole. Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you would raise up even leaders in this congregation to, to do the things that you've called them to and help us to know that we all have a leadership role in our own ways, um, whatever the case may be. So we just ask for your protection in that, Lord God. Help us to protect our hearts, to stay humble, to be full of you and not ourselves and to truly serve one another the way that you've called us to and the way that you gave us a perfect example of. And it's good. It's just so good, the way that you do things. And it does look like foolishness to the world, but that's a good thing. Because <laughs> the world's wrong. So we just pray, Lord God, that we would just be right in your sight, that we would do things your way, and we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, power, love, sound mind, as one body in Christ, as we humbly and eagerly await your return. We love you, Lord, so much. In the name of Jesus, amen. You're dismissed.